You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist, or are there better explanations out there? We are now on episode 52. I am Frederick, your guide into the world of pseudo-archaeology. This time, we are going to look at the top 10 pyramids of the world, according to ancient aliens. I cannot tell if the list is based on how significant evidence the pyramids are for extraterrestrial visitation, or just how cool they are. The episode would also become way too long if we did the whole list simultaneously, so this will be a two-parter. You could also view it as a compilation episode of some great pyramid and one farm structure. We will spend most of our time in Mesoamerica, but we will also visit Peru and Greece. I think you will really love this episode. We will even have a case where ancient astronaut believers cite their sources, and that's a Christmas miracle if there is one. And if you wonder what my sources, resources, and reading suggestions are, you can find them at the episode page at diggingupancientaliens.com. There you will also find contact info if you have any corrections. And I want to thank those who support the show through Patreon, like we all live in a wooden submarine. And if you want to support the show, I will tell you exactly where to go later in the episode. And if you like the podcast, but you can't really spend the money after Christmas or the holidays, well, a five-star review and telling a few friends are great ways to help. Now that we have finished our preparations, let's dig into the episode. We start this list with a familiar location that we have visited several times, El Castillo in Chichen Itza. It's number 10 on the list. We have been here before both with Ancient Aliens and Graham Hancock. Clearly it is an exciting pyramid and what's more interesting is that it let us compare a little bit between ancient alien narrative and Graham Hancock's narrative. So what are the alienists saying about this site this time around? El Castillo was built to venerate the Mayan god known as Kukulkan or the Feathered Serpent. There were traditions in ancient Mexico of a great teacher arriving on the Gulf Coast. He was said to be Kukuklan, which translates as the plumed or feathered serpent. When he arrived, he brought with him the arts of civilization. He taught astronomy. He created the first calendar. He also taught agriculture. And eventually he left promising to return. Last time we were here, they focused more on the human sacrifice at the site, but this time we hear nothing of this. Instead, we get a narrative of Kukul Khan, which is very similar to the story we heard from Hancock over in Ancient Apocalypse. This episode was released well after the Netflix series, so there might be some inspiration here, because this part don't really talk about the alien influence on the site. 
So let's again dissect uh, Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl's narrative and the pyramids themselves. Chichen Itza is located within the center of the Yucatan with the Gulf of Mexico to the north of it. To describe it as a landlocked city is, uh, is a bit of an understatement. An exciting aspect of Chichen Itza is that it had several different cultures and groups living there over a relatively short time of inhabitation. We see an apparent Maya influence in the early city with buildings made in Puk style architecture and Puk architecture was used as Uxmal and other ancient Maya sites featuring stone veneers over a concrete core. Buildings had a plain lower facade with rectangular blocks and doorways, while the upper facade was richly decorated with intricate stone mosaic. The earliest estimate date of the first inhabitation of the area is around 550 CE. Most of the buildings in the Maya style seem to have been erected during roughly 800 CE. And the first secure date is from a Puk-style building called Shinshan Shob or Casarojo. This building, which was still covered in red paint when it was discovered, has a Maya inscription referring this building, which was still covered in red paint when it was discovered, has a Maya inscription referencing the year 869 and 870 CE in combination with several lords' names and a reference to a bloodletting ceremony. Again, Chichen Itza was not a monoculture. We see Itza influence and culture at the site, and this would have been exchanged for a Toltec influence later, a culture from central Mexico, not far from Mexico City. This is quite evident when we look closer at um, the El Castillo pyramid, where what we see today is the last installment of construction that took place during the influence of the Toltecs. As with other buildings and pyramids in Mesoamerica, this one seemed to have several substructures. One was discovered during the 1930s when two tunnels were excavated into the pyramid itself. Inside the pyramid, we find another stepped pyramid in pure fluorescent style, or again in the Puk style. It has nine platforms superimposed on each other and only one staircase on the northern side of this sub-pyramid. Around the top entrance, we can also see a later style called modified fluorescent style, found in places such as Tenochtitlan. And inside this building, there was found two separate chambers, according to Ringjo, quote, a Shakmul statue and a jade-inlaid jaguar throne on which an offering of black mirrors was placed. Although these may well be post-date construction of the sub, they do indicate use of the structure after such trades have been introduced. In 2018, a paper was published by Tejero Andrade et al., who, uh, with the help of ERT, Geophysical Surveys, showed that there seems to be an even earlier building beneath this sub pyramid. And this was based on previous attempt using ERT 3D in 2015 to find substructures within El Castillo. 
they will also see an additional building on top of the already known substructure. This new method of scanning the soil for substructure could be helpful when deciding on further excavation or research on the temple with minimal unnecessary damage to the structure itself. Now, El Casillo might be best known for the shadow phenomenon that occurs twice each year. During that period, a shadow is cast on the serpent that follows one of the staircases, making it look like it's descending or ascending. And this was first noticed in 1928, and the first photos of the phenomenon were taken in 1948. And in Ancient Aliens and in Ancient Apocalypse, we learned that the date for these events are the 23rd of March and the 21st of September. But before you run and buy airplane tickets, you should be aware that these are not fixed events. According to Boot, the event usually takes place between 14th to 30th March and between the 15th and 30th September. Not a whole period, but at one point during this period. And Boots' observation during 2001 showed that the shadow was visible on the 22nd and the 26th and the 27th of March. A question that will still not wholly answer is if the shadow was intentional and observed by the inhabitants of Chichen Itza. While authors like Boot find it likely that it was intended, others are not sure due to the lack of writing about this phenomenon. I'm sure that the inhabitants kind of noticed it, but uh, I mean it's a nice effect. And if you live in a city long enough, I guess someone would notice it sooner or later. Still, as others point out, there seems to be no ritual that we yet have discovered that we can associate with this shadow. Here I'd, I'd like to return to the Khan discussion because ancient aliens make the exact same mistake as Hancock does when discussing this deity. The difference is that according to the alien proponents, Khan or Quetzalcoatl are alien extraterrestrial beings. But Hancock at the same time argues that they are white-bearded Atlanteans. Unfortunately, they are both far away from the truth since they don't really understand the history and the concept of this deity and that this name can refer to several different constructs of the same being or different. The researcher Grunschultz has identified five separate uses for Grunschultz have identified five separate uses the pseudoscientific crowd has melted this character into one single being and the different um, uses are as follow. 1. The theoromorphic representation as a feathered celestial serpent, which is the oldest in terms of religious history and iconography. 2. The anthropomorphic conception of the deity Quetzalcoatl with specific attributes or insignia, but as such also 3. Fluidly transforming into the wind deity Echecatl with uh, other characteristic attributes. Four, as well as the purely human figure of the mythical legendary priest Prince Seacatl Topiltzin Quetzalcoatl, with his alleged sphere of action in Tolan and Cochula, and 
5, the designation Quetzalcoatl as a sovereign title for certain priestly dignitaries. Grimshaltz uh, also note that this account also often include a narrative from the Seri people, a tribe separate from Mesoamerican language and culture located in the northwest of Mexico. However, this tribe, these people, they do have a culture bringer. Ant a coma, or in English, who who brings fire. Note that in this case, the hero comes from the east, so not from Europe. Anyway, it becomes clear that these alternative historians and ancient alien proponents haven't really done their homework. When we speak about both Quetzalcoatl, and this is the Aztec name, and Kukulkan, and that's the Mayan Sotzil name, the translation turned out the same. However, Cook can be translated to Quetzal, the green red bird, while Can is translated to serpent. And this exact translation can be used for the Nahuatl version or the Aztec version. And the root for the first part is uh, Quetzali, or again, Quetzal bird, and uh, Quetzal, and it's generally accepted to be translated as serpent. It is important to note, as uh, Grunholz uh, point out, that this can refer to different things. We can talk about a literal god in some cases. We can talk about different kings or priests that are not gods, but still have the name Quetzalcoatl. And let's look at one of these examples that actually occurring in Chichen Itza. The books of Shilambalam are handwritten manuscripts created by the Maya to preserve their history and culture in the 17th and 18th centuries. One of the sections in some of these texts are known as the Katun prophecies. Two of the manuscripts, Shumayel and uh, and these are named after the towns where they were written down, so to say. Read in the Shumayel cartoon prophecy, we find the following passage translated by Eric Boot. For Aha is the cartoon. It is the eleventh part of the cartoon to be counted. Chichen Itza is the seat of the cartoon. Arrive will the settlement of the Itza. Arrive will the Quetzal, arrive will the Coutinho, arrive will a Cantenal, arrive will vomit of blood, arrive will Kukulkan, after them for a second time. This is the word of God, that is, arrive will the Itza. And in this text, it's not really the God that they are talking about, but a leader of a war band that kind of takes over Chichen Itza. A similar passage can be found in the Tismin Shilambalam, but the city is not specified in that version. And reading other accounts, it becomes clear that Kukulkan sometimes refers to a ruler or a priest that is, again, not a god. In some cases, this ruler arrive with their brothers, and in some cases, a small warband. There's nothing special about this character besides they are know, great leaders and, you know, great at war and conquest. Kukul Khan is not described as being white, arriving from the sky, or any of those alternative alien type of things. In these accounts, these are just humans and behave as we expect humans to 
behave in a sense. And if you want to learn more and go deeper into this, in that case, Eric Booth offers a magnificent deep dive into this in his book, Continuity and Change in Text and Image in Shitsunitsa. Eric Booth follow the character all the way through available sources and help us understand how this character fit within the mixed society of Shitsunitsa. And I hope you get something out of this relatively short summary. I think, I mean, just based on Eric Booth's uh, writings, we could spend hours on this subject. But um, this is the short summary, and I hope they can help you maybe around the dinner table with Uncle Frank and all of that. <laughs> but I hope you see that the ancient alien and Graham Hancock people have mixed several separate stories into one narrative. But suppose we split this narrative into different characters that the Mayan and Asik describe. In that case, nothing of what they say really holds up. Kukul Khan nor Quetzalcoatl were culture bringers in these stories. That idea is again taken from a separate culture nearby, but used to make their claim sound true in a sense. Now, with all of this covered, we will head into number nine on the list. Number nine on the list doesn't really take us too far away. Just a hop and a skip to Teotihuacan, a place we have also visited in the past, looking for Micah in episode 29, Aliens and Ancient Engineers. And we also looked into uh, some of the claims about Teotihuacan would line up with the Orion Belt, for example. As I mentioned in that episode, it's only accurate if we rearrange the site. As I mentioned in that episode, it's only accurate if we kind of rearrange the site's design. This is um, something that, for example, Bawal and Hancock left out of their book, The Message of the Swings. While the Orion's Belt theory is brought up here again, the Mika claims. Strangely, isn't. And Teotihuacan is a fantastic place and far more, well, larger than one might really imagine initially. I was there, well, many, many years ago and the size of the pyramids and being able to go up upon them are quite experience. The site's history is unfortunately quite understudied in a sense. But it seems as if people started to abandon the villages of the hillside of the Mexico Valley and settle down here on the valley floor at one point. And the earliest date where this seemed to have happened is during the late uh, Kaunal phase, meaning somewhere between 600 to 200 BCE. And the reason is, well, most likely due to, uh, well, better agriculture setting on the valley floor compared to living up in the hillsides during this time. And the first public structure that we know constructed is uh, the Pyramid of the Moon, whose constructed starting during the Patalitschke phase. While no exact date has yet been established, it is usually agreed to be between 100 to 1 BCE. I want to highlight that they didn't build the full structure that we see today, Pyramid of the Moon looked like, but a much smaller platform. And there is much left to explore and excavate uh, at the site, and excavation there reveal new things all the time. For example, 
we might have to revise the construction of the Pyramid of the Suns. Excavation between 2008 and 2011 inside the pyramid have given a lot of uh, ceramic fills and new C14 datings. Based on uh, the analysis of some 30,000 ceramic pieces found as filling inside the pyramid and new uh, carbon-14 dates, the construction date might have been between 229 and 330 CE. Sugiyama and a large team discovered earlier buildings and burials inside the pyramid. But as Deborah Nichols points out, it's a little bit too early to revise the chronology just yet. But amazing discoveries are taking place here, and real history is being revealed for us when we start to actually look at it. At its peak, the settlement was maybe one of Mesoamerica's largest and most powerful places. Something that would change, uh, as with all powerhouses, signs of struggle started to show around 500 CE with the problems out in Teotihuacan's outer borders. And this would increase until the fiery destruction of the Street of the Dead and other public buildings in the city center. And for a long time, the date has usually been suggested to be around 750 CE. Recent studies again indicate that this event could have been almost 200 years earlier. Interestingly, this destruction again only affected the public building and a central part of Teotihuacan. With this destruction, the city was only briefly abandoned, but shortly after, people started to return and resettle the city. While it never returned to the good old days of being the biggest, it had a continuous settlement through the Epiclassic period. This period is usually set around 600 to 900 CE. And during the post-classic, 900 to 1150 CE, the population was between 30 to 20,000 people. While this is far from the population in the big dog day, this is not a tiny village size either. During the middle post-classic, 1150 to 1350 CE, Teotihuacan had again become a capital of a, well, small city-state. Although the population at this time never seemed to have exceeded 10,000 person, it still became a substantial place for the Aztecs. And here in Sweden we say that a loved child have many names, which is quite true regarding Teotihuacan. Dr. Edwin Barnhart say that the name translates to the birthplace of the gods. However, this is just one of many translations you will see if you start to read about Teotihuacan and the meaning of the name. I've also seen it translated to place where gods were born, place of those who have the road of the god, place where the gods were created, city of gods, place where time was created, and the place where men became gods. While many of these translations are similar and have a similar meaning, they get slightly different meanings depending on which one you use. Before we go further down this rabbit hole, something worth noting is that the word originates from the Nahuatl language. This is the Aztec name for the site. And we currently don't know what the original inhabitant name was for this location. 
And it seems that we might even have gotten the name Teotihuacan wrong. Veronica Ortega from Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History and, edi and Edith Vergadia and Enrique del Castillo suggest an alternate name for the city based on the re-examination of the Xolotl codices. And this is one of the earliest documents we have from Valley of Mexico. And on plate 6 in quadrant 1c, we find a glyph that looks like a pyramid with the sun setting behind it. And it's generally accepted that this glyph refers to Teotihuacan, but beneath this glyph is written Teohuacan, or City of the Sun. As Ortega points out, we also see pyramids and a sun in the Codex of Huamantla when referring to Teotihuacan. And Stela 31 in Tikal could also confirm this. Ortega claims that the City of the Sun is written on the Stela and refers in this case to Teotihuacan or, as it maybe should be called, Teohuacan. Worth to point out is that one ruler mentioned on the Stela, Nanyax Ahim, is known to have a strong connection with Teotihuacan. So it would not be strange that the city is mentioned on this stone itself. Ortega, Vergara and Del Castillo have also proved that the phenomenon depicted in the Xolotl is um, an actual event that occurs when the sun sets on the 21st of February and 21st of October. These authors have made several other measurements, suggesting that Teotihuacan was planned around different solar events later in its history. But why do we today know the site as Teotihuacan and not Teohuacan? Ortega means that this is due to the sun being a symbol of rulers and power within the Aztec society. And the Aztec rulers went to Teotihuacan on pilgrimage to assert their authority and their connection with the sun. But by changing the meaning of the site, so being a place where the rulers went to prove that they were worthy of being rulers, where they could strengthen their support from the local people and uh, assert their authority, it switched to be a place of worship and religion instead. And this way the Spanish could move the political center from Teotihuacan to Tenochtitlan. And I think it's fair to point out that this is just an initial publication that was published in 2022. It is interesting nonetheless and could lead to a new way of looking at the site. It will undoubtedly be interesting to see how this develops and where it will lead. This is an excellent example of what happens when you start asking real questions and not just blaming aliens or lost Atlanteans for everything. Again, this study can turn out to be mistaken, but it will be interesting to see where this leads and what more we can learn from this. Welcome to Peru, where we will look at number 8 on the ancient alien list of pyramids. What is it we're going to find here? The Lambayeque Valley, northern Peru, 1988. Explorer Thor Heyerdahl investigates what appears to be an area of large earthen hills, but soon discovers 
that these hills are, in fact, massive adobe brick pyramids, severely eroded over the centuries. This was the site of a culture called the Sikhan. And these people, who rose around 750 AD, seemed to be absolutely obsessed with the creation of pyramids. In fact, they created as many as 250 within this valley alone. And in one particular town, they created 26. So we have looked at pyramids in Peru previously, back in episode 44. We discussed a pyramid built by the Coral Super people, and the Coral Super civilization date back to around 3100 BCE. It's remarkable for its architectural feats, including pyramid-like structures and platform mounds, similar to those in Banduria that appeared around 2500 BCE. The most notable site was the city of Karal, and is believed to have housed around 3,000 people at its peak. And among its uh, fascinating discoveries is a platform pyramid featuring an oval theater, and where we found unique musical instruments in situ made from condor and pelican bones, and... Intriguingly, they even had blue whale vertebrae that seems to have been used as stools. Now, there are a couple of issues with the part we heard from the show. It is correct that the Sikhan culture was settling in the Lambayeque Valley. Still, we might have to cover a little bit of chronology to get a better picture of the situation. Sikhan was not the first culture in the area. Before them, we have the Macha culture which was phased out around 700 CE. And then we have the early Sikhan between 700 CE to 900 CE, and then this is followed by middle Sikhan that took place around 900 CE, and that changed into late Sikhan around 1100 CE. And just to make things a bit more complicated, there is a discussion if Sikhan culture and Lembayeke culture should be viewed as one or two distinct cultures. So, some archaeologists will talk only about Lambayeque or only about Sikhan. Some will refer to the culture with both names. And I just want to highlight this if you want to go out and learn more about this culture yourself. The thing is that the previous inhabitants, the Mocha people, is that they also built adobe brick pyramids before the Sikhan culture entered the scene. So these 250 pyramids were not created only by the Sikhan Lambayeque culture, since Mocha sites were reused in later periods by the Sikhan. And most of Sikhan's monumental buildings were made during the middle Sikhan period, starting around 900 CE. An interesting study on the DNA of the Sikhan people indicated that they moved into the area and, in a place, replaced the Moche settlement. Worth noting here that is that some of the Moche settlement had, at this point, already been abandoned. So, what do we know about the middle Sikhan culture? Well, it was a heretical society. This can be seen through the graves where people of lower status often have simple graves with simple grave goods, and in contrast the elite have elaborate grave goods in 
shaft tooth that's uh, beneath large mounds. And this culture also have evidence of human sacrifices, but it might not have been as bloody as we usually picture these, uh, well, practices. Donny and uh, Cordy Donnins are describing in a paper a sacrificial temple in Dos Cabezas. And within this temple, there are eight burials of human that seems to have been sacrificed, seven women and one man. But it was not only the amount or and quality of the grave goods that was interesting, but also the method which these victims were killed. They were all strangled. We know this due to the ropes of fine soft cotton that still were around these necks. Donan and Cordy Donins wrote, quote, Although they, the ropes, would have been uh, very effective for strangulation, they were soft enough to have minimized cutting or bruising of the flesh. The intent may have been to terminate the lives of these individuals in the gentlest manner possible. What's also interesting is the burn motif within the burials and the temple itself. According to Shimada et al. and other researchers in the field, there are later pre-Hispanic myths regarding the creation of different castes from eggs and from the stars. While we are not sure if these myths existed back then, a connection could be argued due to the bird motif we see have. Due to the bird motif we see here. But at the end of the day, most of this religion is unfortunately lost to history. As for Thor Heyerdahl being the discoverer of the pyramid, well, it is a little bit of an after construction. It is correct that Heyerdahl participated in the excavation with Daniel Sandweiss and Alfredi Narvares, but uh, the adobe pyramids were not new. Detailed info about the adobe pyramid have started to become public after excavation by Cavallo and Shimada in 1981, and that's a few years before Heyerdahl's project in Tukume. That said, Sandweis and uh, Narvaez could add a lot of good information about the Lambayeque culture to the books. Ancient Alien brings up this project due to Heyerdahl's hyperdiffusion theories, though. While Heyerdahl was correct that there seemed to have been a contact between Polynesia and South America, his idea of a white culture barrier race creating culture and civilization is yet to be proven. Ionides et al.'s uh, 2020 study does not show in what direction the travels took place either. It could be that Polynesian went to Peru and brought people back, as well as the other way around, basically. Now, during the excavation in Tukume, a relief was discovered depicting birdmen. Heyerdahl claimed that this was evidence of contact between Tukume and Rapa Nui. The similarities are, well, very superficial when we look closer at the burnmen of Rapa Nui and those we found in this relief. According to the ancient astronaut theory, however, birdmen are primitive people's way of depicting aliens. Something as silly as it sounds. People have always incorporated elements they find around them into their religion. And the thing with ancient alien theories is that they cherry-pick a lot of things. The myth that they think fits within their alien narrative, they will promote and talk a lot about and then ignore those myths that 
don't really fit with their narrative. They don't, for example, claim that the shapeshifting jaguar depicted in other places in South America are real events. And I haven't heard them claim that the bird sheep figurines in Georgia, the country, not the state, were real things. We have not heard the ancient alien theorist talk about the flying sheep of Georgia yet. And nobody would make this claim because it is rather silly, but it's in fact what the pseudo-historians are doing here. I'm just going to pause the episode here and thank you, my dear listener, for tuning in. It's great having you here exploring the world of pseudoscience with me. If you want to support the cause of educating people and combating pseudoscience, I'd like if you become a Patreon or a paid subscriber of the show for as little as 250 per episode, which is less than what the Loch Ness Monster asked for. You will help me continue producing high-quality content and gain access to a treasure trove of exclusive bonus material. Imagine the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber where you gain VIP access to our exclusive pseudoscientific book club. You will have the opportunity to hear me read and discuss the works of our favorite on-screen experts for you. To sign up and become a paid subscriber, simply head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support. You will find all the information you need to join our community there. Your backing of the program would empower me to create more content that assists people while keeping the show as accessible as possible. So let's combat misinformation and pseudoscience together. Just head over to diggingupancientaliens.com support to sign up. Together we will uncover the truth one episode at a time. We must push deep into the Petén jungles of Guatemala to get to number 7 on the list. Located 7 kilometers from the Mexican border is a pre-classic Maya society that was swallowed by the jungle and lost in time. In 1926 the ruins of this enormous city was first reported. In 1930, Percy Maderia Jr. took the first photos of the overgrown temples from the air. Ian Graham were the first to officially survey and map the center of the site. Being on the ground, he could, by looking at the pottery shards and sculptures, clearly see that this was a pre-classic Maya site. Something that at first was questioned by other archaeologists. However, Excavation starting in 1978 would change this, and they would last for four years. The excavation, led by Ray Matthew and Bruce Dahlin, would be able to add a lot of new information about the site. With the carbon-14 and other dating method, they could date the site to at least 600 BCE, confirming Graham's initial pre-classic estimation. Today we know that the site, El Mirador, is one of the oldest pre-classic Maya sites and by far the largest city of its time, making it contemporaries look uh, relatively insignificant in size. A giant causeway is leading north toward what would later become a city of equal grandeur during the classic era, Shalakmul. 
Another causeway leads southeast to the neighboring town of Nakbe. El Mirador seemed to be a hub for several causeways, indicating that they relied heavily on trade. We have seen in the archaeological record that luxury items from far away were imported and traded within the city. With the indulgence of such rare finery, El Mirador was clearly a hierarchical society. But as Matthew and Matthew wrote, quote, it's not clear whether El Mirador as a late pre-classic polity may have represented a city-state, a territorial state, or even a regional state. And James Doyle suggests that religion was the thing that most likely held this early city in the Maya lowlands together. These early centers revolved around monumental religious and ceremonial centers where the elite would separate themselves. And El Mirador have two of these centers. And as we learn from the ancient astronaut theorists, the central part of El Mirador has two gigantic pyramids that are connected by a big causeway in between them. One's called El Tigre, the other one's called La Danta. La Danta is 70 meters tall. That's one of the tallest in the entire world. And it's so massive that when you get to the top of its first basal platform, there's enough space where they put three more pyramids in a triad form on top of it. At 72 meters, La Danta is monumental. But it's almost half the size of Khufu's pyramid in Giza. Uh, I also don't want you to picture a true pyramid here because that's far from the case. La Danta consists of several platforms. First, we have the base, which is uh, 330 meters long and 280 meters wide and about 10 meters high. And then following the most significant part, it leads to a second platform where we find the most essential triad in the complex. And this type of triad construction was highly influential and important within this society. And El Mirador was exceptional with their construction of these. And with a triad, I mean, there's three buildings grouped together as, well, a triad. Um, pyramid on top of the pyramid, so to say. And these triads in El Mirador can be found in several times in the same complex. This combined with the mosques accompanying these temples seems to indicate a shared monumentalization of gods, since these mosques seem to be shared across both distances within the region and through generations. In La Danta, excavation have revealed a stucco facade that many believe is one of the earliest depictions of Popol Vuh. A story we spend quite some time with in episode 28. But this is one of the most iconic and important Maya mythology story that had such influence and importance in the Mayan society that comparing it to the Bible or to the Quran is um, not enough. This was such an intricate part of the society that to understand Maya society we need to understand Popol Vuh. And that we see that this story already took form in the pre-classic time is exciting to really show how long 
this story has been a considerable part of the religious and secular society of the Maya people. But instead of talking about this vital influence, uh, the ancient astronaut claims that, well, what we see here is aliens, since they it looks like they are floating in the air. I was quite disappointed when I realized that this this was why we were here. They interpreted a representation that the artist made of Popol Vuh as being weightless in space. Yeah, it's, um, it's so poorly argued that I'm a bit lost for words here. And I don't want to stoop to their level, but the only thing I can come up with here is... Computer says no. <laughs> then they try to make things just worse. In Maya, the word Shibaba means the underworld. But some have suggested that the word Shibaba doesn't necessarily mean underworld, but the Milky Way. So, here we have a case of mixing different elements into a new narrative that again fits better with the ancient alien idea. Let's start with the meaning of Shibalba. And they even give us the true meaning of the word. The word Shibalba comes from the Kichemaya word for the underworld. As a noun or an adjective, Shibibal, it can be used to mean dangerous or frightening. In Yucatan Maya, this place is called Metnal and translates again to the underworld, a place of hardship, darkness, hunger and cold. Something that fits within the Mayan idea of where the dead went. And they usually associate Sibalba and Metnal with the caves and crevices found on the ground. Right, it doesn't make sense that Sibalba would refer to space or being up in the air. Right, that part is from a different aspect of the mythology. And I'm going to... Read from Almer Reed and Gonzalez's book, um, Handbook of Mesoamerican Mythology here. For many, the Milky Way was a celestial path made either of clouds lit by the night sky or water flowing like a great celestial river. In one classic Maya myth carved on bone, the Milky Way in its east-west position became a canoe carrying the mice god to the underworld. Note here that the Milky Way is not the underworld, but the path towards it. Ancient alien proponents have just removed that part where it was viewed as a pathway or a canoe, and then just claim it's another word for Chibalba. The pseudoscientists also like to draw a connection between the three heartstones that are often connected to the place of creation. This was in what we know today located in the Orion constellation. So it is claimed by the late Philip Coppens that the Orion's belt is the origin of creation and home of the aliens. That's why the people of ancient time built the pyramids in the same formation as the Orion's belt and all of that. Again, if you move things around and you look a little bit from the side, but the issue with these claims is that the stars that were connected with the heart stones, the 
stones used uh, to, around the fire in uh, the stones that you put around the fire to help it, uh, you know, stay in place in uh, the Maya society. The heart stones of creation in Maya mythology were Alnitak, Saif, and Rigel. If you know your stars, you know that only one of these are part of the Orion's belt. And the stars that really belong to the Orion's belt is Alnitak, Alnilam, and Mintaka. So the three heart stones were placed by the Mice God and the first fire were drilled there. You know, with a wooden bow and a stick. Not really alien technology that they are describing. And is it extraordinary that the Maya would use some of the brightest stars and incorporate them in their mythology? Just a question here. Now, let's leave the Americas and head to the land of olives, wines and pyramids. We are now back in Europe, looking for pyramids and we will not go where you might suspect. It's weirdly not the Bosnian pyramids. Maybe it's because they are just hills, but you know, as we discussed previously, but we will find the next pyramid in Greece. Argos, Greece. Just outside this ancient city stands a mysterious stone structure known as the Pyramid of Hellenicon. It is the only pyramid in Europe recognized by mainstream archaeologists. So, this segment starts with a massive error. While Europe might not be famous for its pyramids, they are not unheard of. Suppose we exclude a modern creation like the Falaison Pyramid in France, uh, most likely created by Napoleon's veterans from Egypt, or the Balmoral Carns in Scotland. In that case, we have uh, two locations, kinda, with actual Pyramid 1, as we just heard, is claimed to be in Hellenicon. The other is in Rome. The Pyramid of Cestius is an impressive 125 Roman feet, or using metrics, less impressive 39 meters tall. It was a tomb built by Gaius Cestius between 18 and 12 BCE. So Europe have, well, according to this idea, two known pyramids, according to mainstream archaeologists. Take that, ancient aliens. And now to give the ancient aliens their point back, the pyramid of Hellenicon isn't really a pyramid. It's more like a hut with an inward sloping wall, so it does not share anything in common with the pyramids of Egypt or those we have seen so far in the America in function, design, construction, or anything like that. So in this part, we have a first for ancient aliens. It actually gives us their sources. The first isn't really impressive, but well, it's an article, if we stretch the definition of what an article is, from Mysteries Unsolved. And I guess everything can be unsolved if you don't really try. But the second source, however, is a 1997 paper by Theocaris, Lyritsis, and Galloway called Dating of Two Hellenic Pyramids by a Novel Application of Thermoluminescence. They even show the paper within the episode. Right, 
So what is thermoluminescence? So I will let Matilda from uh, the podcast uh, Tea Break Time Travel and and my travel explain this uh, method of dating to you and she's part of the astrological podcast network and go and check out her work because she does some great stuff but matilda the scene is yours thermoluminescence dating it is a way for archaeologists to determine at what point something in the past was submitted to a very high temperature or a lot of light and in this case it's also based on the idea of radiation accumulation over time so take for example a pot when it was fired in the past it would have been submitted to a very high temperature What happens at this point? Well, all of the atoms inside the mineral matrix inside this material start to ionize. This means lots of electrons start to be released from the atoms, and this is radiation. And this builds up over and over and over over time, and it is only released again when the same material is submitted to the same temperatures. So in the future, archaeologists can then take a little sample of the pot that was fired in the past, submit it to the same high temperatures, and you can physically see the radiation kind of emerging in what is known as thermoluminescence. Archaeologists can then measure this thermoluminescence using specialized equipment to determine how long that uh, radiation had been building up in the object and therefore at what point in the past the object was heated, therefore, for example, fired. Thank you so much, Matilda. And let's return to the show here. What is this paper suggesting then? The results suggest that the pyramid was built around 2730 BC. Roughly 2,000 years before the rise of the Greek Empire. This was a structure that is very mysterious. It was constructed by a completely unknown culture. We know almost nothing about it. Now, criticism have been raised towards this study, among others by Mary Lefkowitz, in the chapter she wrote in Archaeological Fantasies. While thermoluminescence or TL is a great tool, especially for ceramics, as we learned from Matilda, it it too has its flaws. In in the study, as Lefkowitz points out, the authors do not really account for well stones being reused from an earlier construction. They also ignore previous research that's been done on the site. For example, they don't mention Louis Lord's excavation in the 1930s. And Lord stated the structure due to its uh, polygonal masonry and the pottery to around the 4th century BCE. The oldest pottery in the construction was no older than 500 BCE. Helena Fraccia also survived the site for pottery in 1980 and her earliest date was around 350 BCE. In 1970, Mark Mann suggested that these sloping walls were just farm structures. And the sloping walls were so you could accommodate ladder to reach higher floor that was made out of wood or possibly brick. And this idea later seemed to have been supported by Fratia's research and later found of sloping wall structure in the Crimea, that seems to be connected to ancient forms again, which further appear to support Mann's idea here. I also want to stress that no burial has ever been found in the structure at Hellenico. It's also built more as a hut than, you know, the megalithic religious and burial structures we see elsewhere. Theocaris, uh, Lyritzis and Galloway's uh, study also aim to prove a connection between the structure here in Greece and ancient Egypt. 
and they don't even really prove that these really are pyramids, we should also be cautious regarding the fantastic date, especially since no other archaeological evidence at the site seem to fit with this date. Now, even if these structures are not pyramids, they are still exciting structures. And now we have covered five pyramids, or maybe four pyramids and a barn. Next time we meet, we will discuss the top five pyramids that will, however, be a different year then. Until then, please spread the word by leaving a positive review on platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or to your friends, family, cashier at the supermarket. For more information about the podcast, check out diggingoutancientaliens.com. There you will also find the extensive list of sources and resources and my reading recommendations for those eager to expand their knowledge on the subject matter. And if you wish to support the show, you can do as um, a couple others already done. Head over to patreon.com slash diggingupancientaliens. Your support is very helpful and help me build this show bigger and grander. If you want to support as many as possible, you can alternately go and support. You can go and become a member over at the Archaeological Podcast Network. And if you head over to archaeologicalpodcastnetwork.com, you can sign up for a yearly membership currently. And if you do that now and at latest to the New Year's Eve, you get a bonus membership for free. So it's two for one currently on yearly membership. Sign one, get one free. And there you get early ad-free episodes from all shows on the Archaeological Podcast Network. You get some Slack channels, contact things, and a lot of interesting stuff there. So it's an alternative if you want to support this show specifically. That's patreon.com slash digging up ancient aliens. And if you want to contact me because you have spotted any mistakes or corrections or you just want to write it all caps email, well, you find my contact info on the website. Sandra Martelor created the intro music. Our outro is by the band called Tralskruv, who sings their song Foliehat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com slash support to read more information and sign up right there.